In this episode, we consider the effect of meditation practice and classical enlightenment on sexuality as we continue the ongoing conversation between Shin Zen Yang, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center for Consciousness Studies and research professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, we recall Lee Brasington's statements in episode 115 that many of his students experience states of meditative absorption as erotic in nature. And we consider Chelsea's observation that Lee's brain scans in these absorption states resemble images of the brain during orgasm. I contrast early Buddhist scriptural statements which state that it is impossible for enlightened people to have sexual intercourse, with later highly sexualized accounts of enlightened masters such as the saint of 5,000 women, Drukpa Kunle, and Rinzai saint and erotic poet Ikkyu Sorjan, and pose the question, what does the data say? In the face of this apparent disagreement within the wisdom traditions about the effect of realization on sexuality, what trends have the panel observed in the sexuality of their meditation students and ultrasound subjects? And what might that tell us about the real-world consequences of deep meditation practice and or brain stimulation aimed at classical enlightenment? So without further ado, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Yes, thank you for having us, Steve. Well, we have just emerged from a series, a sort of series within a series of conversations with uh, Lee Brasington, author of Right Concentration, A Practical Guide to the Jhanas. Those were absolutely fascinating conversations, and I think everyone's expressed a desire, including Lee, to return later to continue that discussion and, and also to go in, in new directions. So it's really fantastic. And actually, I can say, and I think some of you know this, but I can say that we have also some other guests mm -hmm. uh, in the works, some very interesting scientists and practitioners of, of various kinds also who we're going to throw into the meat grinder. I mean, uh, add to this uh, mix. Mm -hmm. of, fresca. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I love so, it. Yeah. So I'm just going to tease that, okay, for anyone uh, listening, there's some nice ones coming. So stay tuned for those. Today, we're back to the OGs, the original gang of Shinzen, Chelsea, and Jay. And, you know, uh, several questions came out of those discussions with Lee. Several questions came to my mind. Chelsea observed that Lee's brain during Jana uh, looks a lot like a brain having an orgasm, principally in the way in which certain regions were deactivated. And indeed, Lee reported that a significant minority of his students do experience the first jhana as sexual, with one of his students even dubbing it the orgasmatron. And Lee also said that his female students reported this at 10 times the rate of his male students, leading him to wonder if the first jhana has something in common with certain types of female orgasms. And this reminded me of the saying famously attributed to Padmasambhava, uh, the basis for realizing enlightenment is a human body. Male or female, there's no great difference. But if she develops the mind bent on enlightenment, to be a woman is better. And Chelsea went on to share sex research about the inhibitory and excitatory dimensions of pleasure. And we were discussing this fantastic meeting of these ideas, we were discussing the possibility that jhana meditation practice relaxes the inhibitory processes uh, and reveals 
perhaps some sort of inherent pleasure in the body-mind system, and that maybe in the early jhanas, part of what's happening is that uh, one's learning to relax certain uh, inhibition, and thus the excitation of piti is revealed. And we were wondering what might that imply about enlightenment in general. And Shinzen was also describing an experience of concentration, or a way of thinking of concentration as a kind of letting go, actually, somewhat counterintuitively, perhaps, to how one would normally think of concentration as a sort of, you know, gripping. So I thought a little bit more about this relationship between uh, meditation, pleasure, and sexuality, and I had some questions to pose to you all. In Buddhist scriptural accounts, such as the uh, Sangati Sutta or the Suttava Sutta, from the Dikkha Nikaya and the Anguttara Nikaya, respectively, uh, sexual intercourse is listed as one of the activities that's impossible for an arhat, that uh, upper level uh, of realized being. And there is this sense that along the path of meditation, there's a sort of freedom from various fetters, and among them desire, and thus sexual intercourse becomes eventually impossible. However, there's also the case of Drupa Kunle, a 15th century saint and missionary of Vajrayana to Bhutan, who's known as the saint of 5,000 women due to his activities, which included allegedly conferring realization to his partners by sexual intercourse. And he wrote the following, I'm happy that I'm a free yogi, so I grow more and more into my inner happiness. I can have sex with many women because I help them to go the path of enlightenment. Outwardly, I'm a fool, and inwardly I live with a clear spiritual system. Outwardly, I enjoy wine, women, and song, and inwardly I work for the benefit of all beings. Outwardly, I live for my pleasure, and inwardly I do everything in the right moment. Outwardly, I'm a ragged beggar, and inwardly a blissful Buddha. And that translation is uh, Keith Dowman's from his 1982 book, The Divine Madman, The Sublime Life and Songs of Drukpa Kunle, published incidentally by Dornhorse Press, the publishing house of the late American guru Adi Dao, which I think is apropos. One might also think, and, this, and then I'll ask the questions, one might also think of the 14th century Rinzai master, Ikkyu, very similar actually to Drukpa Kunle, who wrote, it has the original mouth but remains wordless. It is surrounded by a magnificent mound of hair. Sentient beings can get completely lost in it. But it is also the birthplace of all the Buddhas of the 10,000 worlds. Rinzai's disciples never got the Zen message, but I, the blind donkey, know the truth. Love play can make you immortal. The autumn breeze of a single night of love is better than a thousand years of sterile sitting meditation. So there appears to be some disagreement in the traditions, perhaps at first glance, as to what the advancing adept can expect as a result of practice in terms of their sexuality. So my question to you all as practitioners, deep practitioners, teachers and scientists are as follows. I mean, first of all, what do you think of those examples and these themes as they are expressed in the, in the world's wisdom traditions? But more pointedly, as people progress along the path, are there, have you seen, observable trends, anecdotally, uh, statistically, or perhaps even in your own experience, in terms of their own sexuality? And in the limit cases of the very enlightened people, the masters that you've met or studied with, what have you observed in terms of their sexuality? 
And so there's, I suppose, three questions, the views of the traditions, the practitioner across the arc of development, perhaps including your own experience, and then the cases of the masters that you've known. And then what light might the neuroscience of Jana and the wider literature on pleasure shed on this subject? I'll never stop talking if I go first on this one. I think you probably have the most to say on this one, so maybe you should start. No, but that's what I'm, I don't know. I will not stop talking if you start me on this one. Are you uh, open to being interrupted occasionally? Yes, I can Not do that. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned maybe. how to do that. <laughs> uh, I really want other people to have time on this one. It's not trying to, like, whoever goes first loses, <laughs> but uh, I really want to make sure I don't get carried away. Well, there, there's something about this uh, pleasure, uh, the science of pleasure that Chelsea was sharing, the science of Jana, which we were discussing with Lee, and there was this interaction which was what's going on there are there connections there and, and what are its implications and uh, that led me to think of those various traditional accounts and uh, religious um, uh, themes um, and well anyway I think I've ex perhaps what we're asking for is not more clarification from me <laughs> well okay go ahead Chelsea I was going to say, I would imagine that this question, to some degree, relates to a question I asked you, Shinzen, in our first podcast, which is whether or not people's experiences of enlightenment differ from one another, or whether they are, in fact, simply, maybe as Steve has put it before to me, different facets of a jewel, but all share a similar undertone and whether the path to enlightenment can look really different from practice to practice. So one of the questions I asked before, for instance, is do some people experience more oneness and do other people experience more emptiness? Um, and we could sort of ask, I think, the same question when it comes to pleasure. So is are some paths to enlightenment more filled with pleasure or are some experiences of enlightenment more pleasurable? And the same thing of sex, are some paths to enlightenment more via the sexual and end up, because of that, potentially feeling more sexual, either simply inwardly or outwardly when one arrives at that point. So I think that's sort of the fundamental underlying question for me about this uh, area of inquiry. Do you remember who I was quoting when I said the facets of the, the, facets of the jewels? I think it was Shinzen. So it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a Shinzen quote via Steve, but I didn't know... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, first of all, Steve, I found <clears throat> your picking of the representatives to illustrate the con contrast in traditions and the contrast that you pulled from Buddhism, um, true, it was early Buddhism versus late Buddhism, uh, but it was still pulled from Buddhism. However, I would say similar issues come up in other contemplative traditions around the world. 
So I take it as, um, you know, something that's going to be universal. But your examples were so great to form a contrast. Um, I just want to make sure that everyone listening has the context to what you uh, mentioned. Um, you quoted two suttas, that suttas are scriptures. Uh, actually, they're purported to be the actual words of the Buddha, his sermons, or sometimes his direct disciples. Uh, but those are the suttas, they're in Pali. Uh, many of them, but certainly not all of them, uh, point to early Buddhism. Um, can you name the two suttas again uh, slowly? I, I didn't catch them. Sure. They were two examples, the Sangati Sutta, Dikha Nikaya 33, and the Suttava Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya 9.7. Okay. So it's, it's Tripitaka literature. Yes. However, there are various historical um, uh, layers, strata. So uh, first thing I would do myself, if I was researching this with my Buddhology hat, um, going to look at those suttas in the original Pali and get some sense of how old they may or may not be. It's not always possible to do that. But sometimes by the, uh, the uh, literary form or the vocabulary uh, or uh, grammatical peculiarities or cultural reference, you can sort of triangulate. Was this added later? You know, because stories tend to build, right? So one of the problems is, is as soon as we say there's a sutta, there's something in Pali that is purported to be the words of the Buddha, that gives a lot of authority. But just saying not everything that's called a sutta was the Buddha's words uh, by any means. So it's just a context, but we generally take the Pali Tipitaka, uh, as you said, the, uh, the three baskets as broadly, yeah, this is where you look if you wanna get some sense of what Buddhism was like in its early phase in India. Now, the other person that you quoted, um, <clears throat> was it Drukpa uh, Bunle? D-R-U-K-P-A-K-U-N-L-E. Yeah. Did I spell it? Yeah, Drukpa Kunle. So that is, was he a major uh, force in Bhutanese Buddhism, like uh, the Padmasambhava of Bhutan kind of thing? Exactly. The of Bhutan? Exactly. Uh, yes. So Drukpa is... Um, Kargut, right? It's part of the Kargut lineage. So that's the context for that. 
Now that lineage ultimately essentially goes back to late Indian Buddhism. However, Drupa <clears throat> uh, uh, Kunle lived in what century? 15th. 15th. So he, there's many, many centuries <laughs> between him and the origin of the Vajrayana sexual tradition. So he's talking from the Vajrayana sexual tradition, which is the late period of Vajrayana in India, is when things got more and more sexual and they went from just sexual symbolism to actually like, okay, we're gonna have sex as a spiritual practice. So later Vajrayana is the sort of more sexualized form. And he, he gave a beautiful description of that, what that can be like. Um, I mean, I believe him. Uh, um, then you quoted EQ, who represents the Zen tradition. Um, pretty sure he was a monk. Um, so all those things with, that he had with women, and I think maybe men too, not quite sure about, yes. Um, so all of that technically is against the rules for a monk of that time uh, in that place. But obviously <laughs> he was on a different path and this is, how the sexualized practices no doubt evolved. There were householders who learned to meditate, but I'm suspecting there were monkish types that had sex, right? Let's be honest and discovered, mm, well, actually there's another way to think about this and it's not all bad, <laughs> like the suttas might imply. <laughs> um, the notion that a male arhat is impotent would imply that a arhati, which would be an arhat who happened to be a woman, and they exist, <laughs> um, she would be frigid or who knows what. Or, so this is, uh, this is a big controversial statement, right? This is a medical statement about the impact of <laughs> these practices. Um, and so it goes to the question, EQ, Trukpa uh, Gunle, um, were they, fully liberated? Or are we to take the real monkish view, which is a convenient paradigm if you're living in a monastery, that the result of this is very asexual and will even scare you. If you're capable of having sex, you're not there yet is a little bit of the implication. 
um, is that medically true is a, actually a science question because medicine is part of science. Is it medically true if I'm, uh, I've met some pretty liberated people that were pretty young. Um, I'm peaking at 45 with my practice and my sexual life. <laughs> um, at some point, am I looking forward to becoming impotent? Is a medical question. And I think impossible to answer because while stream enterers are a little bit of a dime a dozen, most people that are listening to this podcast have had interactions with people that are at least at the level of stream entry in practice, if we accept that as a thing. Ken show first little Satori or big Satori. Uh, those kinds of people are all over the place. Arhats, meaning not only the fullness of insight, but the fullness of the breaking of the identification with the mind and body, you're ready for someone to go to work with you on you with the proverbial pair of pliers and a blowtorch. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an imposition, but you know, I got this. That's liberate, that's liberation from the body mind. Um, so if you become that liberated, can you no longer have sex? I doubt that, but it is a medical question. On the other hand, if you're in a very monkish culture, you can sort of see how over the centuries, remember there may be a few centuries between the Buddha and those sutta. I, I'm not saying there are, uh, that's for Buddhologists to debate. People that know Pali and know it well. Um, so I'm done for now. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll, I'll just add one medical fact. Uh, there are people who are asexual. So, I mean, we do know that that is a possibility for humans. Um, it's, they're very rare cases, but there, are, there is a medical case where people, for whatever reason, um, something has genetically happened to them uh, where their systems just don't produce those drives. Um, so it is possible for a human to be like that, but I think it's a very special case and it's not, in those cases, they're not due to practice. I think something else when I'm listening to you, Shenzhen, we also know it's possible that if you, what's Michael Pollan's title of his book, you change your mind. If you take enough of a chemical substance and change your mind enough, you can radically reorient to your own experience. And I sort of wonder if that's partly what we're talking about with these people who are very unusual, who practice so long that they reach what we call arhat. They're so radically reorienting to their own experience that they're not relating to the drive in the same way. And, and remember, this drive is like 
in the biology due to accidents of evolution. I mean, this is in us <laughs> very deeply, and we're talking about reorienting a system that's millions to maybe a billion years old, <laughs> you know, to be truthful. So I just think of those two facts. It's, it's definitely possible for the biology to do that in humans, but it's an accident to biology. And then if you, if you do enough of something to change the chemical soup in your brain, you can reorient to that in a completely different rate. And so then it makes me wonder, is the drive really gone? Or are you just radically reorienting to the drive in a way that you're experiencing it totally differently? See, it goes back to the thing I always say, whenever books by old dead people are quoted, we can't, um, or old books by dead people are quoted. Uh, we can't interact with those people. Let's say the Buddha said it 25, 2300 years ago, whenever the, you know, he, that was. Um, let's say he, he said those words. But what if he were alive today and we were interacting with him with a 21st century sophistication on these kinds of issues? Did he really mean you can't have sex anymore? Or what Jay is pointing towards, which is you're so radically altered that um, there's no real pull towards it um, in general. Uh, so why bother? If it's a why bother, you can definitely be in a deep why bother and still end up bothering. And that's where masters get in trouble. So EQ or Drukpa Gunle, I mean, their poetry and the depth of their insight shakes me to the core. On the other hand, I have personally seen people just like them really screw up on the job and really hurt people in the real world. So there's that. I was going to say this sort of brings up the question for me when you say they screw up on the job about, well, so let me just backtrack a little bit and say that for me, when this question is asked, what it brings up is some very basic ideas about um, the way plasticity occurs in the brain, which mostly seems to be due to practicing different things. And by that, I don't mean spiritual practice, but rather what habits of mind and body one cultivates from moment to moment and which one of those one does the most. And this is a topic we've discussed before on the podcast, which is, does spiritual insight necessarily transfer over to other areas of skill acquisition or different arenas of one's life? Or do we have to actively practice the state of uh, enlightenment or depth or whatever one is going to call that along with the other areas of one's life or the other 
arenas of habit patterns that you're engaging in. So if we presume that it's the latter, you have to practice your practice along with other practices, other habits, in order for those two things to pair together, then it would make sense that what someone did would affect the way they associate enlightenment with an act or not, which would then lead us to the conclusion that, well, if the way I'm practicing my state of enlightened consciousness is without sex, then I'm going to not associate or be able to link the two. And so when I have sex, it's gonna take me away from that state. If I practice it alongside it, then it may intertwine. And for me, that seems like a very basic neurological presumption to make about what's occurring. And it also relates to what you're saying, Shinzen, where if a master has cultivated a state of consciousness, does that or does that not equate with his skill to express that state of consciousness with other beings, sexually or not? And it seems like we're saying not, which means that being enlightened and acting enlightened in any given moment of behavior are two different things. So the you could be enlightened, but you still have to practice being enlightened with another person, sexually or not, in order for that to occur. Seems to be a potential, a kind of basic presumption to make here. Um, and I think that's tricky because I've known people that claim that they're having sex with lots of people for the sake of their enlightenment and the people they're having sex with certainly didn't feel that way. So it's tricky. That's why I, I laughed a little bit <laughs> when uh, the mention was made of these, that he enlightened 5,000 women, every single one of them, you know, <laughs> uh, because I have, I, I'm not going to name names, but as an example of screwing up on the job, I have been present when an enlightened master used that line as a fucking come on. Uh, just saying. I've seen it happen. Well, heard it with it, my own ears. It often goes one. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I'm done. I was going to say it often goes even one step further where the person themselves feels like the act that they're doing sexually with the other person is bestowing enlightenment. Person B says, that's not my experience. I feel violated. And person A says, well, if you were more enlightened, you'd see what I'm really doing. Now, that's even worse. You. That's compounding the mistake. I'm going to call it a mistake. The original word in Greek for sin is mistake. <laughs> uh, harmartia. Anyway, um, the, um, yeah, that's a second mistake. Uh, the first, so um, uh, let me just reorganize here. Uh, okay. The language you just used, Chelsea, involved a very interesting juxtaposition. And I think that um, uh, untangling the juxtaposition can be helpful. I've never heard the phrase before that came out of your mouth, but it was a telling phrase. Uh, the difference between being enlightened and acting enlightened. Now, the fact that that phrase seems 
not just grammatically, but semantically to make sense, indicates an ambiguity with the word enlightened that comes up over and over and over again. Um, I'm, that's why I'm trying recently to be careful in my languaging. Uh, I talk about uh, uh, liberation. And of course, liberation is associated with insight, insight liberation side of practice. That's something that we sometimes refer to as enlightenment. But then there's the integration of that with being a human being. Um, of the Buddha, it was said, vidya charana sampanno, meaning essentially what you just said, his actions reflected his knowledge. Um, so he acted enlightened as well as, but to act enlightened, could, uh, what does that really mean? Because people who are, who have insight and liberation make mistakes, all sorts of mistakes. And some of them are character, you know, they're in the domain of call it what you want, character, behavior, whatever. So um, to act enlightened would be, um, to make less and less of those mistakes. Um, in order for that, so I think you know my party line, my standard thing, whenever people ask this question, I, I always say exactly the same thing, which is the liberation insight side gives you a tendency to be a good person by the ordinary canons of humanity. It imparts a tendency. It also imparts an ability that most people don't have, the ability to suspend more or less on demand, the identification with body-mind states. Um, the combination of that ability plus that propensity in the general case is not enough. Other factors need to be present usually. In theory, you could have the case where the depth of liberation um, was all you needed and that was enough and you got your act together as a human. But usually there's a, a long period of uh, continuing to make mistakes, some of them serious. So the single most important feature to keep in mind, you know, if you want the quick, <laughs> soundbite answer to 
this issue of integration. How do you, that's what I call it, to have a technical term for it so we can talk about it uh, in a principled way. The issue of integration um, uh, the, the single most important factor that's going to determine um, the behavior uh, is going to be their ability to take feedback from a wide range. The, that person, that person that has a degree of insight and liberation. So to what degree do the people around them, including spouses, <laughs> other family members, overlings, underlings, what have you, what does everyone say? Is it unanimous, loved in life, missed in death? Um, that is a function of what's intrinsic to liberation in terms of tendency and ability. And that tendency would then be acting enlightened to use your phrase. Um, and then if I had to say one other thing, individually or in terms of culture or in terms of institution, all those levels, are there good feedback? I think that making love to this person is liberating them whether they know it or not. But they say no, and a lot of other teachers say no too. And my community is in an uproar and we're spending time and energy on this stuff. Maybe this is one of those cases where it is me, not them. If an individual is individually equipped or culturally equipped or institutionally equipped for that, and they submit to it. That is the single factor, I would say, that indicates whether integration is going to be successful or not. I guess one other, yeah, no, that's enough. That, that finishes it. The, all the people that messed up, either their culture, or their personality, or the institution, or the really bad case, all three aligned to prevent those feedbacks. That was a triple threat, the personality, the culture, and the institution made feedback impossible. So liberation and insight off the charts, but things still went off the rails. I was wondering if you could give a quick explainer on what you mean by integration, because uh, you used it a couple times. So it's the broad term for, uh, it's what we're talking about, but broader. It's the, in, 
So this is a component of integration, which is the uh, behavioral component. Um, the other component is the degree to which nothingness or emptiness, and just for the record, they're the same thing for me, <laughs> Chelsea mentioned, the degree to which nothingness and emptiness um, are fulfilling for you. Uh, because that may or may not require, once again, depending on the individual, you would think that oneness, emptiness, if it's such a good thing, as soon as you hit it, you are, you find it an unending cornucopia of fulfillment for your whole life. But we in the unified mindfulness system, we actually teach four techniques. We call them the feel great techniques. They're all body-based, but they're designed to sensitize you to emptiness, a oneness as something humanly fulfilling. So you get used to flow, you get used to uh, rest states, you get used to auto, uh, like uh, the bounce of uh, spontaneity. These are all aspects of emptiness that, uh, oh, no, they're not aspects of emptiness, but they are related to aspects of emptiness. They prepare you to, so you're right, Chelsea, this, we actually did put that into the training to make sure. And then also to make sure we talk about feedback. Um, that's in the manual because we have had so much experience with mistakes, ours and others. Um, so I would say the two sides of integration are to live a fulfilled life. And that's like you learn to drink oneness and emptiness as your sort of daily, you know, fresh juice for life. That may or may not take some sensitizing and training. And then when you get out in the world as a teacher, we've actually, we've, we talk about five things that um, help people integrate, uh, become admirable in their behavior. Admirable in quotes, not in the sense of you need, need to admire, but in the sense of most humans would like to be like that deep down. Um, the um, um, well, the nurture positive technique techniques they tend to create positive content, so that's sort of towards the effective living effectively, and then the um working with things like flow, spaciousness, deep tranquility, essentially the jhanas, 
we just slice and dice it a little differently from from uh, um, Lee and others. But uh, okay, working with those as something you learn uh, that that those are fulfilling. So these are the parts of uh, being uh, of integration that uh, involve techniques. But then the single most important thing for integration that's not related to an actual technique that you're practicing is, well, personally, culturally, institutionally, are the feedback loops in place? That's number one. Number two, what are your personal ideals, your role models? What's your idea of the person you would like to be? Your personal uh, role models. And then finally, in last place, is the thing that everyone else puts in first place and therefore the arguments never end, which is guidelines behavioral guidelines, ethical guidelines. It can be the 10 commandments that according to your belief system should be recited by every loyal American and be on the entrance to every school in the United States. These are the 10 rules. Follow them and everything will be fine. Fail to follow even one of them Big mistake. Um, but guidelines don't have to be those kinds of rules. They can be looser. In Buddhism, the, the vows are called uh, sikapada, means a place of practice. Not as severe as the Abrahamic type, unless you go all Abrahamic in Tibet, which you can easily do. It's a human thing. If you follow what I'm trying to express, you get fundamentalist about the rules. The Buddhist went before he died, but you don't say die for a Buddha, you say entered Nirvana or entered Nirvana without a remnant. He was already living Nirvana. Now there's no remnant of body-mind. So before that, they asked him, uh, after you, should we change anything? You know, what, what should be the guideline about behavior? And he said, well, don't be too attached to the minor rules. And in the history of Buddhism, it is recorded at the official convocation when they got together, no one could decide what a minor rule was. So they kept all of them. About 500 of them. And there's an entire path called the Shila school that existed once in China in the Tang Dynasty and it was very big. It's actually the origin of Zen, believe it or not. Chan, they obeyed all the rules. So there's, there's nothing to do all day except meditate. So they started to meditate. 
that is actually the origin of Chan historically. Um, it came from the uh, the Jielu Zong, the Shila Vinaya, the yeah, the Shina Shila Vinaya school. Yeah, they. It's like we'll just keep every single rule. It's like Orthodox Jews have the same thing. If you keep all these rules, <laughs> you know, you won't have any time for anything else or anything bad. So they, some of them spend their whole lives in synagogue, literally. So, and other cultures, oh my God. Um, so there's a place for guidelines. We use guidelines scientifically. We have bioethical, oh my God. I mean, Jay is the master of getting people to consult with us. So I, you know, rules, call them what you want. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Um, let's call them guidelines. Let's say it's broad. It ranges from fundamentalism, which I'm not a big fan of, to professional medical ethicists, which I am, uh, and a lot of things in between. So the way we try to make sure that the integration occurs is uh, by, first of all, giving them this feel great family of techniques that's specifically designed to set them up to um, be able to have fulfillment from nothingness. And then there are these five things that we talk about Okay, take feedback. Uh, you, you've got role models. There's a couple ways you can use techniques. Um, and yeah, guidelines. So anyone that goes through our coach training has to um, learn all of this. Uh, so I guess you're right. We, we wanted, this is our, specific insurance policy, Chelsea, to sensitize people early on uh, to these. And there's a reason because Juliana, who implements it and, has, and we're writing the manual together, it's become very collaborative, it's wonderful. But she's seen the same problems I've seen. And this was our best shot at it, I mean, at a, a solution, you know, to the problem. I noticed that we've naturally trended towards the ethical dimension, and I think that's a very important dimension, but I don't think that's the only way to look at the subject. And actually, part of the reason I thought this was a very interesting question, I think this is a very interesting question in terms of the context of our discussion with Lee in the context of the work you're doing, for instance, at Semilab, is as Jay said, you know, maybe it's not an interesting question, maybe that's what we discover in this sort of conversation. But uh, as Jay said, these are very deep drives. And indeed, from what I understand, the structures that you're targeting for your ultrasound interventions are indeed sometimes deep structures. 
So there's the ethical uh, discussion, and these are well-worn themes, but I'm also curious about the data, if there is such, not necessarily its ethical implications in terms of how does one conduct one's you know, love life, for example, um, especially as a, as a teacher or a position of authority or something like that. You know, my initial question was, what have you noticed in Shinzen, for example, in all the many meditation students that have reported to you, presumably including um, this theme occasionally, but perhaps there's no clear uh, trends or consensus there. And in terms of your research, uh, Jane Shinzen, what have you noticed in targeting these sorts of deeper structures? What have you noticed, if anything, in any reports of the subjects uh, in this area? It seemed that in our previous discussion, there were hints that at least jhana practice and something to do with sexuality had some possible connection. And then there were also tendrils of hints that perhaps this says something about the path of liberation, if you like, um, in general. And so that's in a certain sense how I think this question beyond just the ethical or aside from the ethical, which is very important and not not to be overlooked at all. Uh, but there's this other aspect that I'm curious about in, in terms of both of your experiences and researches. And of course, Chelsea's your, your, one of your great areas of interest is in the uh, sex research literature, in the in the literature of pleasure. So you also have that bridge. In fact, you're the one who initiated that bridge in that conversation uh, between those two fields of study. And given that, you know, I noticed that, you know, we also went to the extreme cases of um, ethics gone wrong. And perhaps I'm to blame for that by bringing up the extreme cases of Arhats and uh, <laughs> uh, Mahasiddhas. So, you know, perhaps perhaps I'm to, to blame for that. But I'm interested in if there is such a if such a thing has been observed trends and what that might tell us about the trajectory of your work and the implications of your work targeting these deep brain structures with ultrasound, etc. I also have something to tack on to what Steve just said, and this might be a rather radical thing to say, and I'm perfectly happy to be completely and totally wrong here, but there may be a way that ethics may in fact be linked to the conversation about variability of enlightened experiences and ability to act enlightened in certain circumstances. And the way it might be linked is this. And again, happy to be wrong. If we presume that different people are having different experiences both on the way to enlightenment and as enlightened people, so specifically in regards to sexuality, we can presume, based on Lee's reports, that some of his students are experiencing their path to enlightenment as a sexual path, regardless of whether he instructs that or not. And there are certainly, as we've discussed, traditions that explicitly introduce practice of both actual sex, uh, sexual, sexual practices that are not about having sex, and people who just have more pleasure and sexuality interwoven. So if we presume that there's different people that get to enlightenment and have sexual or non-sexual experiences, and then from there, they create a list of things that people should do to sort of take on the shape in their body-mind of what an enlightened person might do or think or feel, right? And that may be where a lot of ethics came from. Like, well, I kind of know what it feels like to be in a more advanced state. And so to help people who might not have access to that, I'm going to give them this sort of structure. If their body-mind takes on the structure, it's more likely to go towards enlightenment and less likely to hurt other beings. And if we presume that different people have different experiences, then the guidelines they set forth for lower practitioners might 
be in different body mind shapes. So some people might recommend sex, some people might not recommend sex, depending on whether that was associated for them with a more awake state of being. Um, and so that might be where a lot of this debate comes from, is the presumption that one of them has to be right, and that there can't be multiple shapes that a body mind could take on and be awake. So I don't know what you two think about that, but I think there might be some grains of truth in there. Well, now we're back to the ethical question again. And um, to be specific, these students were reporting not necessarily that their path to enlightenment was characterized by sexual bliss, although that is something that is reported to write, but just that first Janet in specific had a sensual, sexual or even orgasmic quality. But I'm curious about the data. Has anything been observed in your in your research or in the anecdotal reports of students that might uh, shed light on this particular expression of the deep structures of the brain? Well, I mean, to start with the research, Shenzhen, you've been putting you to break. Um, yeah, for the research, we really, the dimension that's been reported most from sonicating, so we're using ultrasound to uh, stimulate the brain. Low intensity ultrasound focused in part, certain parts of the brain allows us to modulate that brain region for a short amount of time. And what we've been finding actually is more in the dimension of equanimity uh, more than anything. So um, sort of an openness to experience. And most of our subjects have been long-term practitioners, many of Shenzhen's longest term students. Um, so if they're having anything on the sexual dimension, they're not reporting it to us, um, maybe because we're not asking. Um, it's, it's a tricky thing to ask in the lab. Uh, you have to have special ethical approvals to even talk about those things and rightly so. Um, so we're not sure, but no one, no one's really reported that for us. Um, we've also sonicated or ultrasounded, um, a part of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex, which, um, tends to deal more with, uh, your sort of default mental state. So sort of self-talk and things like that. And the sense of self, um, I don't know, Chelsea, if you've read anything about sexual, experience in the in the posterior cingulate. I wouldn't be surprised if it was involved because it seems to be involved in everything. Uh, but again, there, we haven't really had many people report anything in that dimension. Uh, Jay, I'm curious, has anyone in the ultrasound field broadly, neuromodulation or otherwise, used ultrasound uh, to study sexual phenomena? Has it ever happened? Uh, it, it's never happened as far as I know in the lab. There is a, a patent out there um, that's like uh, ultrasound orgasmatron or something is the name of the patent. <laughs> uh, so everyone's going to look it up now. Um, but I, I think it's an idea in that patent. I don't think, as far as I know, I don't think anyone's tried it. What, they, what was the... Uh... <laughs> if they got a patent, if they could pass not being a, a crank, I'm interested in what their idea was. Just um, It's actually, so someone told me about this. Um, so I'm not, I actually haven't looked it up myself, but someone, uh, there's an old line of research where they stimulated parts of the brain that are involved in sexual experience. And this is usually in animals. So they're trying to stimulate their sexual behavior. So that circuitry has been somewhat defined. And so I think the, there's oh. lots of different patents out there that try to come up with a new device to, to target that circuitry in humans. And so what I'm is like, the circuitry? 
what do they stimulate or turn off to create a sexual experience if indeed they can do that? Um, it's different, very deep limbic centers. It sort of depends on the animal and, and the evolutionary um, degree of that animal. But they can uh, get a male or female, say <laughs> mammal, sexually just like that. Do they, do breeders use it? Or um, it's not, it's not uh, implemented yet. It's just a theory. It's only oh, no, you said they do it on animals. So let's say I want my horse, you know, and to uh, cover a certain mare, but I need it right now. I'm just wondering if there's ultrasound. I, I don't think so. I think there's ethical guidelines that cover, you know, that protect cover, the animals. Covering? <laughs> protecting the animals from that. I think kind of cover behavior. is the <laughs> um, polite word for when it's horses. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I don't think that that is allowed by uh, breeders and things. But uh, yeah, there's also a researcher named Jose Delgado, who um, very controversially, he's a, he's a brain brain stimulation expert from the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And uh, he was trying to, you know, you have to understand back then people thought that homosexuality um, was a mental disease and it was actually in the diagnostic and statistical manual as a mental disorder um, back in the 50s. And so Jose Delgado was actually implanting um, electrical brain stimulators in homosexual males, and I think a female as well, um, and trying to repress their sexual appetite. And he was successful uh, in suppressing it, <laughs> but the idea was to try to get them to convert to uh, heterosexual, and of course that's impossible. And so what ended up happening is these people's lives were ruined because he basically suppressed their sexual appetite to the point where they had no identification with it. Um, and, and I think there may have actually been a suicide, I'm not sure, but I think people were pushed into deep depression because of this. And so Delgado is actually targeting that same circuitry that we're talking about in, in the opposite direction. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Just sort of piggybacking, Steve, on your question. I have, maybe it's a logic question and maybe it's a question that uh, your listeners would have too. It's actually something I've read specifically a lot on Reddit when there have been sexual scandals with uh, high-level teachers. It goes a little something like this. Um, if you're free from desire, clinging and aversion, and you're free from illusion and you, you're completely awake, you're enlightened as a being, how can you have desire for sex? I think, I think the logical question is something very simple like that for people. And, and also if, you are, if you're free of illusion, then you understand that your sense of self and the boundary between you and other is also a construction. And so how can you not feel the suffering of another person if you're using them for your own sexual appetites. So I think there's two questions there. One's the logic of like, if you're truly free from desire, how can you have a desire for sex in the first place? So maybe somebody can- Yeah, I think- That one. Just to give some inside information, uh, uh, you know, from the field, uh, I think, there are some associations that are made, perhaps subliminally, that um, 
lead to a logical issue, a logical problem. Um, I have met at least a couple people that um, I would say had transcended uh, the body and the mind. Um, to a high degree. Um, uh, let's see how to put this. Um, oh, yes. To a high degree. Enough that it looked to me like, you know, they could just sit down and a week would pass and then they could get up and they'd have no more difficulty doing that than I would have, say, sitting for one hour. I've met people like that. So that degree of liberation from body-mind, uh, not only do I know is possible, I see it as a palpable visage for myself down the line. I have to work very, very hard, and right now I'm doing other things. So I'm not working on that. <laughs> I'm working on the lab. <laughs> I'm putting my time and energy into this other stuff. Uh, but if I put all, if I went off to the forest and put all my time and energy, you know, probably maybe in a few years, um, something like, I, I can see you can do it. I can see I can do it. So that degree of liberation of body, mind, uh, there's evidence for that. I don't know whether that degree of liberation from body-mind should be thought of as complete liberation or complete insight. So the logical problem, I think, is that phrase. Now, if you ask someone from a non-Buddhist tradition, if you asked a Roman Catholic, um, Can any living human being other than the Virgin Mary be free of sin and other than her son? But that's the same as the father, so. But Mary was, is considered by the Catholic Church to be special, immaculate conception. Other than that human case, all the rest of us will be influenced by sin until we work it through in purgatory. Hopefully it doesn't get any worse than that. And then we can, on the other side, be free of sin. So a Roman Catholic is, 
going to say any Buddhist claim to be that special as a human being, our teachings say that's impossible. Um, I tend to agree with them. Uh, even after I could do what I just described with a smile on my face, I don't think I'd describe myself as free from sin or in the same class as a mythical being like the putative Virgin Mary. Um, so I think there are definitely big benchmarks. I mean, there's no doubt about it. For a lot of people, if it happens suddenly, that first breakthrough is, whoa, I'm now 24-7 changed for the rest of my life. Maybe 40, 50 years later, you get a visage, oh yeah, I can see, I can be that person who's beyond body and mind to a pretty dramatic extent. And that's, yeah, that's a big benchmark. Um, I don't see that as the end. I just don't. First of all, I don't think you are really be beyond all sin. And secondly, there's a lot for humanity to learn about the wisdom function. The, the changes in perception that happen when the subconscious fluidifies and starts to work on auto. You can use that for science. It, I will tell you the same mechanism that gives me the spiritual insights gives me the math insights. But I know it's right because my insights agree with the experts and when I'm right. Occasionally, I'm right. And it comes from the same place. So I think this notion that there's a stopping point individually or collectively to practice, you can see why it came about because there are these really dramatic benchmarks. But I think maybe it, logically, what you bring up, Jay, logically, it's maybe not a good way to think about it. We just think there are benchmarks and some of them are, they are pretty dramatic. I mean, the way I am now compared to the way I was 40 years ago compared to the way I was 60 years ago. Wow. Um, so I think that's a problem. And that's deeply ingrained that there, there needs to be like a point and a person attains it. So that's number one. Number two, the process of certifying a teacher. In traditional cultures requires a, a very long um, uh, training. Um, there's a tendency to think that after they've done this very long, very hard monastic training, and the teacher says, you're ready to teach. 
that that somehow equates with they're free and they're done. Um, where I'm saying maybe no one is ever done. Um, so there's this Japanese song that goes, Sensei, Sensei to Ibaru na Sensei, Sensei wa Seito no Nare no Hate. Hayo, yo, Dekan Show. Dekan Show is Descartes, Schopenhauer, Dekan, uh, yeah, the, oh, and Kant, the four, the three. Western philosophers that every Japanese college student when Japan started to have colleges 100 years ago, um, no more, 150, what have you. Um, they, this is a student song. We have to learn Descartes, Kant, Schopenhauer, this Western stuff. But the, the, their philosophy teacher, they're saying sensei, meaning teacher, 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 get off your high horse. Teacher is just a worn out old student. Okay, so that was a student song. So I think of myself as a worn out old student. I, I take that song to heart. So I think that there's a tendency to think that if a teacher has put a a stamp saying you can teach, that they've attained some sort of thing that maybe no one ever attains. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, that the, the question about the logic of the system, in this case, uh, the biological system, our brains and our bodies, uh, likely isn't as, as linear as, as we assume or feel. And, and a lot of my dissertation work was actually looking at the logic of the visual system and the idea that it's not this linear process of putting together visual objects, for example, but it's much more dynamic, nonlinear. Feedback is involved at every layer of the system. And so what I hear you saying is that the sort of bigger logic of the, the self unfolding is somehow like that as well. And I think ultimately that will jive with the way that we understand the true, if you want to call it the algorithm of the brain, but it, the brain doesn't work on algorithms. It's not like a computer. It's more like this nonlinear logic, um, more like a Hegelian, the philosopher Hegel's logic, I would say. And so I, you know, I think that that gets deeply to some of these horrible atrocities that we've done to people. Like we were talking about Jose Delgado trying to take, you know, he was trying to logically remove homosexuality from a system and you just can't do that. It's not the way that the system actually works. And, you know, he actually used phrases. I mean, it's not clear exactly how he felt about this. He's a very controversial figure. Um, he clearly did some horrible things to people, but there were, there were words like liberate people from the homosexual desire. And you just can't, that's not the way the system works. It's much more complicated and dynamic. And that sexual identity is deeply tied to the rest of the logic of the sense of self for, for people who, are, um, who have that orientation. 
And so I think what you're saying, Shenzhen, is very deeply aligned with the way that we will eventually understand how all of this in the brain and the body works in the first place. So, so thank you. The, the problem, I think, too, is that psychologically, we think linearly. We're, we're kind of stupid in that sense, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. It's hard for us to think in a nonlinear systems level way. Um, and so I think when we think about like the logic of enlightenment, it's very, very natural for us to think about these logical progressions one after the other. Um, but it's probably not working like that, actually. And, and that gets to Chelsea's question about, is there one log logical linear path or are there many budding possibilities? And it's probably many, many budding possibilities because it's a massively nonlinear dynamical system in the first place. Yes, I think that's kind of what I've been trying to point to throughout the podcast. And I think there's, to me, if I look at it from a neurochemical or scientific question standpoint, what I know about sexuality, period, is that not only does it differ along lines of what we've been talking about, such as object preference, meaning which objects in the world, people and things and activities and stuff do I associate with sexuality? Those are my sexual cues. It also varies in terms of the level of inhibition and excitation that naturally occur in the brain, period, genetically and due to upbringing. So people are going to have huge differences in the way they're sort of neurochemically set up sexually. So if you think about just inhibition and excitation, if you're a person who tends to have more norepinephrine at baseline, dopamine, uh, oxytocin, and you have lower serotonin, you're going to have not only a different sort of personality in the world, like you might be a little more neurotic and high strung and kind of cuckoo, but you're going to also experience sexual arousal really easily. Like thus the term uh, crazy in the head, crazy in bed, right? So people are going to have these sort of like personalities. They're going to be like, I'm a little neurotic and also I experience sexual arousal really easily. So you have these varying sort of baselines of neurochemical and neuroanatomical systems operating. Then you take a variety of different meditation traditions and have them, each of which is going to act slightly differently on a neurochemical, neuroanatomical level, depending on the system, and have them act on those varieties of personality types over time. And that way that they act, as you said, is not going to be linear because of the complexity of the system. So as you say, you start to get this really branching uh, tree of possible ways that someone could ascend along lines of spiritual and sexual evolution and the way those things would intersect are going to depend on the baseline of the person's sexual system how it starts the way that the meditation system acts on this person's baseline and then time uh and how that acts on the other two so and and how they were instructed with meditation exactly the techniques and also the conceptual framework is going to enter in. And I think you've given a nice dimensional analysis of what we would look for biophysically. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, the larger point, and this might get us into a territory where Shinzen is going to talk about category theory, but it's it's one nonlinear dynamical system. And it's actually not just one. I mean, brain is one, body is one, the gut is a whole nother one. There's lots of nonlinear systems, even in your your own body, that is then interacting with a whole bunch of other people. So there's a bunch of other nonlinear systems that are providing feedback into your system. So that brings the feedback that Shenzhen's talking about. 
And then there's much bigger systems. We live in our earth system, Mother Gaia. Uh, you know, there's plant and, and bio systems. There's, there's obviously climate systems that everyone's becoming aware of. Uh, and then there's even bigger systems, there's gravitational systems. And so there's all these interacting nonlinear systems around us that are providing feedback, actual patterns of information into the body that are changing and tuning the, the sort of reverberatory patterns that are inside of the system, causing you to act in the world and then they're feeding back into those systems. And so it's a, yeah, I mean, when I hear you, you Shenzhen talk about integration and feedback, I mean, I'm just on this podcast, actually, more deeply understanding exactly what you're talking about. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of soaking in that wisdom as you're talking here. Well, I'm soaking in your wisdom, too, right now, because um, this does sound like a job for applied category theory. And in fact, it sounds like a job that only applied category theory can handle because I think what you're saying is you may be interested in a few networks, the brain, human happiness, that's a couple networks, but what about all the other networks? And you can't just isolate one or two or three. And all of those networks interact with each other, don't they? That's the challenge. Because you can have unexpected long-term correlations, right? Across scales, uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is what we, <laughs> what we do. Uh, we, that's what we, you look for. So what applied category theory offers, at least in the guise as it's been developed by John Baez and his circle over the last five, 10 years, however long they've been working with the notion that, well, we're some of the best abstract mathematical thinkers currently list living. Can we come up with what we're good at? What, you know, what's our, um, what do they call that? Your uh, value position? I think there's a phrase. What's our value position for helping the planet? Given that as scientists, we see this, whoa, uh-oh, uh-oh. We see it in detail. It's palpable. It's like, uh-oh, uh-oh. There's some things we need to be taking care of. <laughs> and we have no idea how to do it. Because it's networks with wicked problems. Um, and... Um, what they've come up with is a natural way to link any kind of network to any other kind of network. Yeah, doesn't matter what. If I want to link in some way, who knows what the link is? 
if I want to link the network of molecular movements in my bathtub to um, what's going on right now in my bladder, and I'm not in my bathtub. Uh, one is a biological network. The other is just a bathtub full of water. And then I would like to know how those might cross link to the structure of the World Wide Web, just for the fun of it. Now, give me a, uh, a mathematical structure that will weave seamlessly those three networks into a single network. And then we can begin to talk about all sorts of correlations that no human has ever even considered. They've, I believe that they've got the math that does that and no one's noticed yet. So if I was going to say one thing to the neuroscientists of the world, start cracking on applied category theory and it's a bitch because category theory is a bitch. It, monads, there are things called monads and it takes gonads <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. study this kind of math. And I, it's yeah, and I'll monads just, and gonads. I'll just so interject. Don't be scared away. I don't mean to make a sexual <laughs> male gonads. You're just bringing a conversation back around. <laughs> there are monads and, and gonads. And if you're a regular scientist and have never heard of category theory, what to say of applied category theory, it's going to take a little bit of intestinal fortitude to weigh into that material. But I'm going to make a stand that it, there's a high probability it's going to be a big deal in this century. Basically, if you look at the, what DARPA, what the US military, I mean directly you know, from the Department of Defense, what they will give money for mathematically, look at their 23 challenges for the 21st century. I think they've got the beginning of about half of that, seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just from a point of view of, as we've been talking on these podcasts of understanding the neurobiology and what, why you get this energy coming up sometimes, sometimes not. Why is it this way for some people and others? The, it's very natural for me to think about this in a very reductionist, simple, linear way. And actually, I, I do think that the logic that the Buddha figured out, if, if you know, if we understand, if I understand it properly, at least, is very simplistic. And I think there's power in the simplicity of that logic about way, the ways that craving and aversion mess with the system but then when we zoom out and try to understand how those basic insights impact the system because i think that's really what we're talking about and i think we we get kind of 
confused between the, the small and the big. But when we're talking about how these things, these insights reverberate out into our behavior, uh, if we really want to understand that, it has to be in the direction of what Shenzhen's talking about. It's the highest level of mathematics that is only just now being understood and talked about. And I think once we get that, it's going to open up a science that is gets me out of bed. I mean, it's the most exciting yeah. thing to think about yeah, how yeah, these yeah. systems actually interact and how we can you know, address something like human suffering, depression, anxiety, and loneliness, all the way to climate change and how do we feed 10 billion people in the next 50 years? You know, these giant questions that are coming are not linear logical questions. They're systems questions. They're much bigger questions. Um, and I think we're on the tip of that. I think the science is kind of on the tip of understanding these things. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time actually to be a scientist uh, and a scary time as Shenzhen said, because we also, the more we understand these systems, the more we understand how fragile they are. And what we're doing to them is putting us in a very precarious situation. So it's this interesting balance of like the fragility of the system versus like understanding it so we can we can really get in. And I'll just give you one example um, that I've learned recently about these complex systems. Um, uh, there's this concept called compassion cascade. I don't know if, if you guys have heard about it on the call. But um, one compassionate act can cascade through a system of human interaction. So one example is um, in New Jersey, someone paid for a person behind them at a toll booth. You know, toll booths are notoriously places that people hate because it stops traffic. And so someone decided to do an act of kindness and pay for the person behind them. This cascaded for hours and it was like on the news in New Jersey. And, and so, you know, this is the sort of feedback reverberation in a system. This one action can cascade through a system. And they've actually studied this. There's been a couple studies where they set up these complicated video games and they have like thousands of people play at the same time. And they will see that one act of kindness reverberates 3x through a system. And then that reverberates 3x and that reverberates 3x. And then you get this sort of nonlinear, you know, exponential type of of growth through a system that feeds back and impacts people's behavior. And, and so, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. It's these complicated systems interacting with each other to change behavior that then changes the way the person feels that then changes the way they behave. And it just starts sort of feeding back through those. So anyway, the only way to so, understand that stuff is what Shenzhen's <laughs> bringing up, but only a few people in the world actually understand it. And I think Shenzhen is getting there. <laughs> the, um, uh, I just got to ask, is there a meanness, meanness cascade? That's a uh, great and natural question. And I looked that up and surprisingly, I couldn't find it. But there's got to be. I mean, isn't that more or less history? The, I mean, yeah, I think that's there's it's pretty clearly the case, but usually in science we study the negative end of human behavior and experience and in this case i could only find it for compassion <laughs> so well, what we want to do is we want to foster the compassion cascade and we want to diminish the meanness meme um to continue with alliteration themes um so you'd work on both, I would think. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I, Jay, have a lot of 
talking to do about those games and uh, the research on the compassion cascade, because I'm already putting applied category theory in my head as you talk mm. to that issue, but I need to know a lot more about the, the networks and so forth. So I, I'm going to lobby that uh, we've been at this for a couple hours almost now, and uh, maybe this is a good breaking point. Um, and maybe if people are interested in uh, applied category theory, you can check out the Azimuth project, jo John Baez, not Joan, it's a relative, but um, is an eminent uh, mathematical physicist. And this is his specialty. And he developed it as a specialty with the Gaia hypothesis in mind. Wow. Well, thank you, everyone. What a fascinating discussion. Chunzen, Chelsea, and Jay, really fabulous. And uh, I'm impressed that nobody in this entire thing thought to make a hard and soft Jana joke. That's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed and I commend you. That sort of low grade humor is really beneath, I think, the tone of this discourse. I, however, am not beneath that. <laughs> so, <laughs> am I going to include that? No, I don't think so. I can't that. Let's just say I that. think you should, Steve. I should include that joke. I think so, yeah. You know, I had one final point. In terms of these sort of networks, which affect other networks and the theories that you two are talking about, I think that's absolutely what is going on with sexuality and with spirituality, both of them being very complex networks that reach into many other systems. So sexuality has, you know, its roots in childhood and attachment, and it affects all of our relationships that we have as we go through our life and our self-esteem. And, you know, just it has its fingers in almost every pie. And then spirituality has to come in and act on all of that sort of sprawling octopus equality of sexuality as it manifests in the system. And as we see that that proliferates throughout people's systems over the course of their practices in these many different ways, one of the outcomes is the one we talked about where things just go really horribly wrong. And I think because of that, what often happens is that that's the one outcome that people end up focusing on because the, the magnitude of the intensity of how that impacts. And we even did that in this podcast, right? It was very hard for us to get back in to the many other ways that sexuality would interact with spirituality because this one sort of leg of the octopus is just so horrifying. And so then what happens is uh, we, we really lack data on this phenomenon, which as you were saying, Jay, maybe people are having these experiences in the ultrasound, but they're just not reporting it because the ways in which it can go wrong and the, the trickiness of, of communicating that stuff uh, is, is intense, right? And so I think it's hard for us as we stand now as a spiritual community to really track in what ways those two octopuses are interacting. Uh, in, I, you know, the sex positive camp says we'll just say everything all the time because we should be positive. The, the, the fear camp says we'll just shut it all down. Personally, I don't think either one is the answer because sex is a powerful force which can cause disgust and pain and uh, a lot of really powerful, intense emotions which should be uh, acknowledged. On the other hand, um, if we don't talk about it, we will never see the sort of potential for the way it's uh, saturating our systems, both in regular life and in spiritual practice. So there's some kind of answer in there about how to face this 
complex issue that I, I'm not supposing to have the answer to, but I think whatever it is, it's certainly not simple. Um, and it's going to be by nature complex, both in how we approach it, in how it functions, and in how it functions when acted on by another very complex system like spirituality. So that's kind of my wrap-up point, if that's helpful. Very helpful. And that does segue into talking about applied category theory next time around, maybe. <laughs> Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.